0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 4, Supplemental Episode 1, an interview with Craig Canerick. Craig was the co-designer of the world's first banner ad and a co-founder of Razorfish, which was one of the first design-slash-technology-slash-advertising shops uh, at the birth of the Internet era. Razorfish was one of the pioneers of the New York City technology scene, what would later be dubbed Silicon Alley. And we learned, actually, after this interview, that we are actually office neighbors in the Dumbo neighborhood of Brooklyn. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, why is this Chapter 4 supplemental one when I actually haven't gotten around to releasing Chapter 1, Episode 1, properly yet? Well, the way I'm going to put it is, That's because I'm going to be the co-founder of a baby girl uh, any day now, so I wanted to get this out to you guys in case I'm unable to release an episode next week. Suffice to say, Chapter 4 will be dealing with advertising as a business model, and so this conversation with Craig will slot in perfectly to that whenever we get to it. So anyway, let's get on to the interview. Craig Kanarek. Craig Canerich, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: So um, you uh, you grew up in Minneapolis, is that correct? That is. And uh, you were uh, uh, a math kid, a, a nerdy kid. What what sort of a childhood did you have?
1: Yeah, I did a lot of math. <clears throat> I was primarily um, pretty advanced in math, and that was probably the... The, the thing that I focused on more than anything else as a kid, did you get into programming at all or yeah, I was actually uh, very lucky, I think, to be at a both at a school district and in a state that had a lot of investment in in computer technology. You know I remember um, probably as early as maybe second or third grade, uh, being part of a program where you know, we had teletype machines, and we had uh, acoustic modems that were probably a hundred baud or three hundred baud, and would would dial into them and have, um, and, and 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 be able to use those machines and play games like Oregon Trail and other things through something called MEC, the uh, I think the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. So, so I was exposed to computers at a, at a really young age, and then I think. Probably somewhere around fifth or sixth grade, uh, our, our schools got a bunch of Apple IIs and TRS-80s and offered some summer school classes in, I guess, computers, computer programming. I have no idea what the, what the terminology would have been. Um, and my, my parents signed me up for a couple of them, and, and I, I really enjoyed it.
0: When you head off to college, what are, what are you studying?
1: So I went off to college thinking that I was going to study artificial intelligence. Hmm. It was sort of a, um, it was almost like a pre-internet, uh, you know, bubble situation. I think, uh, if if I remember correctly, you know, uh, supercomputers and and AI was really uh, starting to take off as though it was going to be the next great thing in computers. And you know, during the four years I was at at Penn. Hmm. It, it blew up and sort of disappeared, but I, you know I don't know if it was a, a combination of you know w- watching R two D two and C three PO and Star Wars and thinking that that looked really cool and gosh wouldn't it be nice to you know invent something like that I, I really don't know where the where the where the initial influence or impetus came from mm-hmm. but but you know I, I feel like that was probably part of it and I went off thinking that I was going to go you know, build thinking robots or thinking machines in college. So it was really a, you know, it was a, a combination of a, a degree in computer science and then a liberal arts degree in philosophy or linguistics or psychology. And, you know, I actually applied, I believe, to a cognitive studies program at Penn, or at least thought I did. There was There was like a paragraph in the brochure about it. And then when I got there... They said, "Oh yeah, that's a new program. Um, we'd like you to go out and take a bunch of classes in computer science and in these other sciences. I mean, in these other liberal arts fields, and then come back to us every every semester or so and let us know if you think that those courses would make a good core curriculum, and and, and you know, sort of design your own program."
0: Hmm. Uh, so, but you didn't end up going to Penn. You ended up going to MIT.
1: No, I, I went to Penn for undergraduate. Okay, and I ended up getting. Uh, a degree in philosophy and a degree in computer science. Mm-hmm. And after I uh, graduated, I moved to Boston and worked at a company called Bolt, Berenick & Newman, BBN, which was actually uh, sort of had a, a claim to fame in that they actually were the firm that was awarded the ARPANET contract from the Defense Department when, when the Internet was sort of originally invented.
0: Mm-hmm. So and but you do attend MIT now when you're in Boston.
1: Right, so I worked there for about two years working in a really interesting program that uh, networked flight simulators together, basically making the world's largest multiplayer video game, but having actual soldiers play the game rather than consumers. And uh, after about two years of working there, I decided to go back to graduate school and ended up at the MIT Media Lab. Mm-hmm.
0: So what ends up uh, bringing you to New York City?
1: Well, after about, well, after, you know, two and a half years in graduate school, studying sort of interface design, for for lack of a better description of it, uh, I I was sort of lost and didn't know where I wanted to work or what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, spent some time in L.A., spent some time sort of traveling around the country, trying to figure out where I was going to land. And I ended up... Back in New York, living on some friends' couches mm-hmm. and you know falling in love again with the city, as I had done many, many times before, pretty much on every visit here, and uh, decided that it was the right place for me to to put down some roots although i wasn't I wasn't really fully committed because I spent probably six months living on friends' couches uh before I was able to to really commit and go out and get an apartment, and even when I did, I still spent a year in that apartment without unpacking any of my belongings. I just left everything in boxes in the corner of the room and basically had a, a futon in the, in the living room.
0: And where are you working at at this point?
1: <clears throat> well, I, I had uh, two jobs. I, I was working at an art gallery in New York called the Pace Gallery and was helping them set up an inventory system online so that they could keep track of all of the Paintings and sculptures that they had um, when I was when I first got there, they were actually just using uh, you know three by five note cards in a file cabinet, and wanted to digitize that whole system. So I worked with a friend, uh, Mark Pollard, over there to try and design a system where they could use computers to keep track of all these things, and then and then actually help them hire a friend of mine from college to do that. And at the same time, uh, a, a good friend of mine. Uh, from He became a good friend of mine, but he, he was a, someone associated with the Media Lab and um, was doing a little bit of contract work for IBM and asked me if I, if I could help consult with him on a couple of projects. And the first project that we did was a startup screen for uh, an IBM PC where sort of like you would take the PC out of the box and, and open it up and plug it in. And up would come a screen that said, thank you for buying me. Can you please tell me what time it is so that I can set my clock? And then, and then that screen disappeared and it was never seen again. So that was probably the, the, the first real sort of interface consulting project that I did. But what's important is that that started a long relationship with, with this guy Otto and his company Tangent Design, which was based up in Westport, Connecticut. And a lot of work that we did together with IBM. And it was probably through that work uh, where Otto and I went away for a weekend. uh, I don't know how many months later it was to sort of learn what the Internet, uh, you know, what, what the worldwide web was all about and design the first web page for the PC division of IBM. And you're doing this as a part of his company? I was doing it as a consultant Mm -hmm. to his company. The company was probably three or four people located up in Westport, and they were doing all sorts of different types of uh, design, digital design communications projects.
0: So this is maybe 1994?
1: This is somewhere in like, yeah, late 93, early 94.
0: Mm So you'll have to tell me the story because I'm, incredibly curious how how did you come to be involved with the world's first uh, banner ad
1: well you know it was while we were working at while i was working at tangent um, you know the internet side of, of things was starting to grow a little bit the jury was still out on what was going to be the the, the prevailing technology you know, the World Wide Web was seen as something really slow. It was not very commercial. Companies were putting out uh, laser discs at the time and, and, and CD-ROMs were starting to take off a little bit. So it was really not clear what was going to happen. But somewhere in the, in the fall or the late summer of 94, they got a call over at Tangent from a company down the street from Moda Media explaining that Wired Magazine was going to launch a new website called Hotwired and that on that site there were going to be ads from companies in the same way that, you know, magazines had print ads. Then, didn't quite figure out exactly what the details were, but one of Moda Media's clients, AT&T, had either heard that MCI friends and family was having an ad, or I don't really remember the exact circumstances around the media buy, but that they had bought an ad for AT&T and they wanted to work with us to try and create this ad for AT&T that was going to go on the Wired website when it launched in late October, 94. So this is maybe, you know, two months earlier than that you know, we, we worked with Moda I happened to know the chief technology guy over at Wired at the time, a guy named Brian Bellendorf. And Brian and I had known each other uh, electronically for a long time and, and had actually collaborated on a software project a couple of years earlier. And, you know, he was, he was sort of sharing his time between Wired, uh, the digital side of Wired, and a digital agency, Organic, that had opened up in the wake of all of this in the same building as Wired. And, and I don't know the exact circumstances around that either, but they were collaborating a lot on these projects, uh, on this project in particular. I know Organic did a bunch of, of these ads as well. And so, you know, it's it, it's interesting because there really was no one single... First banner ad. There were actually, depending upon how you count, there were six or eight or fourteen. There were there were a bunch of them that were all sold at the same time. And when Wired went live at the end of October of ninety four, it went live with a handful of ads all at the same time. But but in any case, you know we were we were collaborating with with Motomedia, building this ad for AT and T and we were one of the first ads that that uh were put up on the internet that had dedicated creative and that were actually linked and that people could click on them and then go somewhere else
0: right the, the you know the lore is that the creative for the what the internet likes to think is the first ad says have you ever clicked your mouse right here you will is is that the AT&T ad
1: that is the AT&T ad there were actually <clears throat> There were two AT&T ads. There was one for at and Labs, and then there was this one. And that was the ad that I designed and that I worked on.
0: And so that first issue of Hot Wired uh, is in October of 94, right?
1: Yeah, I believe it was October 27th of 1994.
0: Um, what What thinking went into any of the... Any, any of it like you know the the size of it the the placement you know I obviously the template is is the existing magazine uh, paradigm but w- what was what was the thinking in terms of the design and and how to make it attractive and things like that
1: well you know it was really it was it, it, a lot of it was sort of done on conference calls and it was not uh, you know it was all sort of done a little bit on the fly you know the 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 size of the ad was was really created because of the size of the browser at the time and, you know, the scroll bars on the side and people just trying to figure out exactly what would fit. And if I remember correctly, you know, it was uh, uh, Matthew Nelson who helped start Organic with his brother Jonathan. And he worked with Barbara Coor and Rick Boyce and they were really creating the specifications, you know, what they said was, okay, you can, you know, we'll we'll make this, this ad, it'll sort of run the full width of the screen and you'll get an image and then that image can be linked to something. And they, you know, were designing for Mosaic and I believe maybe an early version of Netscape at the time. And they started to, you know, play around with it and realize that somewhere around 460 by 60 was the right number, but then the browsers at the time automatically put a two pixel uh, blue box around those ads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they shrunk it down to 456 by 56. And I remember, you know, some phone call at one in the morning talking with Brian and saying, okay, so where on the page is this thing going to go? Is it going to be at the top, in the middle, at the bottom? They still hadn't figured that out. We were talking about, you know, is it going to – are we going to email you this image and all of the HTML and all of the other things that happens when it gets clicked on? Or are we going to host it on our website so that, you know, maybe the it will balance the load of the clicks on your machine and our machine? And there was – you know, there was just a lot of conversations. A lot of this stuff was not really figured out until the very last minute. So the, the tech – you know, and the and the sort of specifications about where these things would appear and how big they were 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 all sort of juggled about up until you know almost the very end.
0: And what are what does it lead to when you click on it? I mean, you know, this is 1994, so there's not a lot of companies that have websites at this point. Did did they did you also have to set up rudimentary landing pages for them? Well, yeah, there was
1: not only were there no. Not a lot of really big corporate websites. Um, at the time, there was really a debate whether a corporate website would actually be the thing that people wanted. I mean, I remember people saying like, "Who wants to go to?" You know, like who would want to go to a website with Pampers where they're just going to talk about diapers all the time? Why, what what could they possibly say about it that would be interesting? So there was a lot of debate about where those things would go. You know, I think Zima had a corporate website. They were one of the original advertisers. Um, you know, it was Zima, AT t Sprint, Timex, as I mentioned, MCI, I think Volvo, and I think a modem company called Zircom. But you know a lot of those it, it, you know, you're exactly right. There was a lot of debate about, well, okay, we'll, we'll put this ad up, but then where are people going to go? And I know that our team, consisting of you know Otto Timmons and Brent Hood and a couple of other people on the Tangent side, and Joe McCambly from Moto Media and Geo McConnell from Motamediya, you know, we talked about it a bit. And really, you know, what we what we thought was that going to a corporate site, going directly to AT and T really wasn't going to be what people wanted. Remember, there was no advertising, so people were not used to it. Mm-hmm. And we, we had an opportunity to sort of define what, what corporate advertising would look like in the internet. So we talked a lot about, well, what would we do here? What would we, as a customer, be excited about if we actually clicked on one of these things? And we decided that what we would do is help people discover the amazing part of the internet. And so we, we, we talked about, you know, what was really exciting about it. And we also really looked at the AT&T television ads at the time. And, you know, this You Will tagline, um, you know, the answer to the question, really came out of a series of, of television ads that they had been running a little bit earlier. Yeah,
0: I remember those, yeah.
1: You know, the, the Tom Selleck navigated ads that were things like, you know, have you ever said goodnight to your kids? From a thousand miles away, right? You will, and they showed this sort of Jetsons future of the world. Uh, you know, many, many, if not all of those have come true, right? But at the time, it was really this sort of fantasy about how the future is going to be really amazing. And they asked these leading questions, and they answered it with "You will," and AT T will bring it to you. So we thought, what was awesome about the internet was that the future was actually there right now it wasn't about you know what will be happening it's about what is happening right now so we talked about it a lot and we decided that what we would do is we would expose people to all of the great art that was on the internet so if you clicked on that banner ad uh you know have you ever clicked your mouse right here you were taken to a landing page where you were you were given a choice there was a a map of the united states or actually there was a a map of the world, with maybe five or six dots on it that represented art museums that had websites. So one of them was the Louvre, and I, and I and I really, off the top of my head, can't remember what the other ones were. But there were there were four or five real world museums that had put parts of their art collection online, and then there was one. Uh, that we linked to that I believe was just purely a virtual museum. It was just digital and didn't have a real building in the real world. And that was the primary experience. So it was, you click on this and you see a map of the world and you see a way to use the internet to go visit art galleries online. And at the last minute at t said, you know, maybe we should actually find out who these people are so let's put a survey up on the site as well, and ask them a little bit about their long distance, or you know, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. We're we're actually trying to dig up the old creative so that we can we can uh, show people what was there, you know, when people click through to it. But you know, I remember it was it was very interesting. You know, one thing you'll notice about it is that there's no actual AT T ad, a uh, no AT and T logo in the ad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was. You know, due to AT&T kind of being uncomfortable with, uh, you know, exactly what was happening, they weren't fully convinced that this was such a great idea. So the AT&T branding is actually very minimal in the banner ad and even on on the landing page, it was pretty minimal as well.
0: I'm going to actually put the ad in the show notes. So um, if, for listeners, if you want to see what the ad looks like, you can uh, go to uh, this episode's page on, on our website. Hey, everybody, this is Brian uh, interrupting real quick. If you go to www.internethistorypodcast.com and you do look for this episode's post, you can see not only the first ad that we're talking about, but also the at and ad campaigns uh, that we were talking about earlier. Um, that also makes me wonder, did you have any analytics or any tracking? Were you able to get any idea in terms of what kind of results these ads got?
1: Yeah, we, we, we did, you know, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, it was, it was a ridiculously high number. I don't know if it was 50% click through or whatever it was. It was, uh, uh, a, a huge amount, but You know, and it sounds very impressive. I was going to say, if
0: I could get 50% click through these days.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it sounds really impressive, but, you know, you have to remember that no one was exposed to ads at the time. So it wasn't clear that people understood that that was going to take them somewhere that maybe they didn't want to go. I mean, look, I would like to think it's because I I designed something incredibly beautiful and that our copywriting was so amazingly compelling. Um, But, you know, I think the truth is that it was also a time when people were not sort of a nerd to ads and, and you know, angry about them. So, you know, I've, I've read it's somewhere between, you know, 40 and I, I think I've read 78%. So whatever it was, it was, it, it was a huge number.
0: Hey, guys, Brian again. Uh, he actually had someone come into his office and he had to conduct some business. So I apologize for the rough edit here. Uh, but uh we'll pick up the interview again right now. I'm leading into into razorfish actually um my My next question would be how do how do you get in touch with uh Jeff Datches at that point
1: so you know Jeff and I had known each other pretty much our whole lives we had We had gone to uh probably some some nursery school programs together, and you know we're friends all through high school. And it and had lost touch during the, the college years, but I was actually helping a company here in New York set up their computers. Actually, take them out of their boxes and, and plug them in and set them up. Around the same time as all of this is happening, sort of, uh, you know, early '94, the company was actually called Lawn. Uh, it was called Blender. Sorry, the company was called Blender. It was started by Felix Dennis, who at the time had, had had a lot of successful British computer magazines. It was before he started Maxim, but but his idea was to launch a entertainment property in the states that was going to be a, a CD-ROM subscription magazine. So you were gonna, you know, like subscribing to a print magazine, pay money. And then every two months get a CD-ROM that was going to talk about music and television and movies and things of that sort. And I was helping these guys set up their computers. And uh, apparently at the same time, uh, Jeff was coming in and trying to see if there could be a position for him at the company. And we were just in there at different times of the day. And the guys there made the connection that we were both from Minneapolis and gave Jeff my phone number. I came home one day and he was on my answering machine.
0: So, how is it his idea to to start a company, or you guys reconnect and and you decide you want to do something on the web? How how did Razorfish, the idea begin?
1: Well, it was it was sort of collaborative. You know, I I had been doing this consulting work, as I said, for Tangent Design, which was you know in Westport, and I was frankly I was a little tired of of the commute, mm-hmm. and I also felt like this was going to be a big deal. This sort of interface designing was just going to be much larger. And I, I had big plans and I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to start my own company just like Tangent. I'll print up some business cards and I'll make a company and I'll do the work and I'll figure it out. And as I said, I came home and, and, you know, Jeff was on my answering machine and he said, I heard you're trying to start a company and, you know, I I want to start a company too. Let's get together and talk. And I went and I showed him, really, the World Wide Web, and he was one of the first people that I must say, you know, didn't think I was a nerd, but one of the first people who just got it. Mm-hmm. I remember showing him the the live uh, log file, so that you know in one window i'm clicking on a website and and at the same time he would see the hit show up in a log file in real time mm-hmm. he just he was able to put it together and say wow you can do this this is this is unbelievable and so we talked for a couple of months about you know about starting something new and uh, i was fortunate enough to get invited to time warner to speak in an internal meeting of various people that was, it was actually set up by the guy who, I I believe the guy who ran the internal telephone network for Time Warner. And he set up a day where people came in and spoke about the internet, about various parts of the internet. And I came in there and and showed some of the work that I had done for, uh, with Tangent for IBM and some other projects that we had done together. And, the editor of the Time Life book series was in the audience and asked me afterwards if we could talk and if we could build a website for them, uh, for Time Warner, if we could build a website for the New York Botanical Gardens hmm. that they would pay for with, with the idea that they were going to pay for the development of a handful of, of sort of gardening-related web. Sites And then eventually they would try to sell the time life series of, of home decor and gardening books.
0: And that's way before even Pathfinder or anything like
1: that. <clears throat> it was sort of, I, I believe that it was as they were trying to uh, develop an idea for Pathfinder.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the areas was going to be called the virtual garden and that was where they were going to put this thing. And so I, I, he asked me if I could do it. And I said, wow, that's, that's, this is my opportunity. Let's, I'm going to go talk to Jeff. And, and uh, we got together and said, wow, this is our first project. Let's start a company and let's, let, let's make this our first project. Yeah. And we started negotiating with, with the guy at Time Warner. And he said, look, you're going to need to have a, a company name and be incorporated you know, in, in two weeks because I'm going to need to cut the check and get started. So you guys better pick a name and, and and start your company, and you know I think we went home after that and spent the next i don't know four or five days brainstorming names and getting all of our stuff together and that's that's really where the company uh, you know it took its first steps
0: so razorfish starts out as a as a design firm of creating websites for companies like Time Warner
1: when we first started the company we we really you know we're we're very open to a wide range of whatever could be coming down the road so what we knew is that screens were going to be way more important in people's lives and that they needed a real dedicated workforce that would design what those interfaces were and so we we said okay so you know we will design digital interfaces maybe their websites, maybe their CD-ROMs, maybe their laser discs, maybe their ATM machines, maybe their interactive televisions. You know, there was a whole Time Warner project down in, in Florida around interactive television. You know, we, we were sort of agnostic on what the technology was. But, but you know, when we launched, we said that, you know, we, we really launched with three divisions. There was the consulting part where we were going to, design other people's experiences. There was a, a content part, which was Razorfish Studios, where we were building content websites, like, you know, what Hotware was doing, thinking, okay, well, if we, we could also build the shows on which these commercials would run, right? So we could build websites. So we built some art websites and some game websites. Uh, blue Dot. Uh, at, at, under the Blue Dot. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that was the, it was also just a way for us to build our portfolio and do things that we weren't getting paid to do. And then we also were going to launch a technology division that was going to write code and software. And actually our first project that we were going to write was a web traffic analysis software package.
0: And you guys, you guys run this out of his apartment for what, a year?
1: Yeah, we, we basically ran it out of his apartment for probably a year or so. I don't know the exact timing. We had uh, you know, people working in his apartment, people working in my apartment. And uh, you know then we decided that it would make sense to get an office, and we, you know, we went out and got, got an office, and, and things just really started to take off. You know, we were, we were in the right place at the right time. We did some very aggressive marketing ourselves as a company. And, you know, those two things together really helped us grow.
0: What is the, what is the environment like at that point? Are there a lot of other, uh, you know, design firms, advertising firms popping up?
1: You know, there were, there were a couple of them. Uh, Agency.com got started pretty much at the same time. In fact, if I, I I, I think the story is correct that at, at that meeting where I was showing my work to the internal Time Warner people, Chan Su, who was the co-founder of agency.com, was also presenting uh, at the same time some of the work that he had been doing for Vibe magazine internally at Time Inc. And so, you know, out of that meeting, at least two internet companies, two two, uh, sort of web, early web design firms got launched. And of course, I had mentioned that organic had started in the in the sort of you know takeoff and launch of, of Hotwired. But really there were there were just a few. And I think that, you know the big technology company in New York at the time was Voyager, who was doing CD-ROMs and laserdiscs. So there was there there were a few of us that were starting to launch. It was uh, Avalanche Systems and a couple of others, but it was really very, very small and insular. There were a few people over at Sony Music who were doing some things. It was really not much going on. And it was, you know, it was this very weird universe where we all felt like we were on the on the edge of something really, really amazing. We we, we were all pretty confident that this was going to be huge. But at the same time, we were talking about stuff that clearly nobody else understood and was looked at as kind of weird. and uh, And it wasn't, you know, very clear which way the wind was going to blow, whether corporate stuff was going to take off, content was going to take off. There was very little talk about commerce, even though everyone thought it was crazy. You know, people were saying, "Why would anyone ever give their credit card over the internet?" Even though people do it over the phone, it's just it just seems so much worse. So it was really, a, a, you know, very strange, but also incredibly exciting time.
0: And and when does that change? When does the rocket ship really? take off and and all of a sudden you know we're getting into the to the dot-com madness and stuff like that
1: well you know I think for us it was uh about two years later um when we sold part of our company to right. Omnicon. Omnicon right so you know it was gosh I'm I'm trying to remember exactly when it happened Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but you know we we the the first year you know 95 96 was um you know was was sort of wild west time and i think that when when omnicom came in and invested in in us as well as organic think new ideas agencycom red sky and and I believe uh, one others uh, you know one other company
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it things started to change a little bit not not because of the money being invested in in us and not because there was this impression that that we were getting rich because it still was not it really wasn't about the money and it and it was not you know, none of the information about the investment size or anything was made public. Nobody was boasting about how much money they had raised. You know, it was just, yeah, Omnicom invested in a bunch of companies. Um, it didn't say how much or, or 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 any of those details. But but really, what it was is that you had the world's largest ad agency holding company saying that these agencies that are that are building digital campaigns are part of the agency universe they're part of the advertising universe they're part of the real world and you know these are real companies and i think that's you know to a certain extent when things you know took a a a big shift and and really started to grow in a different way it was because really uh, you know a mature industry uh an old industry came along and said no this is this is the, the the next big thing
0: and you guys by virtue of of you know being there in the in the wild west days you sort of become uh the elder statesman of of what becomes the the silicon alley scene as it were
1: well yeah i mean you know at the time we were we were one of the bigger companies and i think you know all those that got investment dollars at that point from omnicom they were they were all sort of big-ish, you know, big being, I don't know, 25, 30 people. But they were, you know, there were companies that it wasn't two or three people in a, you know, in a, in a apartment anymore. They were, you know, there were companies with two, three years of operating experience and the backing of a major ad agency holding company.
0: And you guys actually, I mean, if if I'm right, you worked on, you know, some of the bigger early web properties like Pathfinder uh, and the, the globe as well.
1: We, we did some work for the globe. We worked on Pathfinder. We, uh, we really, we, we worked on an early version of Schwab.com and, you know, at the, which was, which was a couple of years later, but it was sort of, you know, the, the thing that followed this takeoff, as you, as you know, was really the rise of the day trader and a lot of internet speculation. So, you know, people talk about the internet bubble as this this force, you know, in, in the financial world, but they forget that that was also the first time that, you know, trading was really put into the hands of individual investors and that they could execute trades through websites. And, you know, that contributed a lot to what happened in the, in the financial markets, as well as all the speculation from the banks and the IPO markets. But yeah, so we, you know, we worked on early... on on Schwab which was one of the first online brokerages and that was a really exciting project we we were you know by by virtue of the fact that we were big and experienced and and there at the beginning we got a chance to work on a lot of early exciting projects
0: and eventually you know um you're writing the 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 dot-com madness you guys have your ipo in april of 99 i think and um like I, I read a quote from you where you said uh, something like, "Wow, I got on the wrong train, but it's an amazing train. I'm just going to ride it." What, what was the when when things really get crazy? What was what were those times like?
1: Well, you know, I, it, it was very interesting. When when I the, that quote, and I don't know the exact you know wording, of course, but but I, I remember the sentiment. You know, when when we started the company, my you know, goal, and I think Jeff's goal. They were they, they were fairly well aligned. We wanted to build a great company where where people loved going to work. We wanted to build a company that we could both work at for the rest of our lives, and that you know other people could work at for the rest of our lives. But I think when we started, the idea of a big company was probably you know a hundred people. It's probably. You know, an office in New York with like a little outpost in London and a little outpost in L.A. sort of give us some reasons to, you know, be, you know, to to be bi-coastal and to, you know, have a gateway into Europe. We I don't think that when we when we started, at least I certainly didn't expect that we would grow to over 2000 people and be in nine countries and, and experience the type of explosive growth that we did. I, I don't think we also I don't think anybody anticipated the entire industry to, to, to catch on and grow that way. But, you know, it was a, it was very romantic. You know, it was the, the, the promise of the Internet was that you could sort of you know buy anything at any time without leaving your house. And by the way, it would it would be free because you know money was going to just be free flowing everywhere, and, and it was very romantic, and so it's it's easy to understand that people fell in love with it and everyone sort of drove towards that. But you know that quote was was just you know myself expressing how Razorfish, you know, like I said, became a very very large company. And it was not what we had expected, but it was fantastic to be part of that growth and to be, you know, part of something that people were super, super excited about. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like Forge FX help students master their skills.
0: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at
1: meta.com slash metaverse impact.
0: You guys, in a way, became poster boys for kind of the dot-com era stuff. There's uh, a famous New York Magazine article and there's that infamous 60 Minutes interview where you guys kind of got sandbagged a little bit. Um, did you feel maybe... Because a couple of the, of the Netscape people I talked to kind of had a sentiment that at some point, you know, the the media hype for the dot-com stuff was beyond any sense of what reality actually was on, you know, in terms of day to day running a company. Um, How, how did, how do you feel um, uh, your image and your, your dealings with the media and, and, and the, the, the image you guys had at that time, how do you, how do you feel about it now?
1: Well, you know, Uh, I, I, Look, I have to take as much responsibility for it as possible. I, I'm not going to blame any of these things on anybody else, or, or, or to that extent, give them credit. You know, we were in some ways very media savvy, and we're very conscious uh, that the role that media could play. As I said, we we were pretty aggressive from a marketing standpoint at the very beginning, and we sent out an email a week, a press release a week to make sure that people knew what we were doing, and so we were we were loud. You know, on purpose, we, we tried to build the company. We tried to have a really good time. And we threw some great parties as well to celebrate what, you know, what we thought was a really bright future and what we thought was incredibly hard work. You know, what what you have to remember is this was still like a computer world. You know, people were still working incredibly, incredibly long hours at the time. And we're working really hard to try to create an industry. And so when we blew off steam, we did it in a big way as well. So, you know, there's there's some reasons why we ended up that way. I I think that for all of that savviness that we had about building our image, we also didn't really understand that a large part of the media world is to, you know, is to try to pump something up as the next great thing and make – you know the, the the reporters and the media have an agenda themselves, so they need to build things up and make it really amazing and and exciting because that gets them readers. And then the flip side of that is, it's always great to take down somebody who's really huge. And and I don't know whether we understood that. Uh, you know that's that's a mistake that many people make over and over again when they when they deal with the press. And so, you know, we were you know, we were sandbagged by 60 Minutes. Sure, we were told one thing and, you know, they edited it a different way and we were told that by various reporters. You could argue that we should have known that and we should have taken better media training and and found out. Uh, There's probably things I said in this interview I I shouldn't have said if I had some media trainer listening to me. But, uh, you know, we were in the thick of it and it was really exciting and it was really great. But I do think that part of what the media wanted to focus on was people getting rich. You know, it's interesting to me that a large part of the tech news now is about how much money companies raise, not about the other metrics of their success. It's really just like, hey, this company raised this much money, this company raised this much money, and that's the that seems to be the narrative right now in in technology is people are investing in companies and they're raising money and that's the primary you know other than maybe somebody getting punched in the face for watching for wearing google glass mm-hmm. that that seems to be the thing that i read about on on regular websites and on tech websites and so there's always been this fascination with technology can make you rich. you can you can start a company and you can make a lot of money doing it. And, and I think we're still you know 20 25 years later in that same trap of let's talk about the money side of it as opposed to any other aspect really. So yeah I feel like to a certain extent the press did that and and you know focused on things that were maybe not the most important part of it. But, you know, shame on us for for continuing to talk about it also and for, you know, participating in the conversation.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I almost kind of feel like the the press in the Valley in California is almost uh, too rah-rah obsequious. Um, But in in New York, it's like New York does seem to have that tradition of, you know, we're skeptical of this. Who are these guys coming along telling us they're going to change the world kind of thing? Like maybe – part of that was being new york based it's you know it's it's snarky out here
1: it is and it's a little bit more honest but i think you know at the same time new york magazine uh, you know uh, some of the ways in which our industry was portrayed in there was was very similar it was all about let's hype these guys up as really you know it's sort of this combination of let's hype them as really cool and interesting but at the same time we'll sort of you know, we we know they're headed for a fall, mm-hmm.
0: and they they definitely you know got to got to eat their cake when the when the dot com bust happened. Um, but uh, you guys survived. When did you when did you actually leave uh, Razorfish? Two thousand one.
1: Yeah, we left in about April or May or, or or so, if I remember correctly. I don't know the exact date, but we basically left in the spring of 2001 and you know the company was you know had had gone way up and and then went way back down again right so we were at 2200 2300 people and then at the beginning of 2001 we laid off probably 20 percent of the staff the stock price went from 57 to a dollar and you know in the same way that people said this is the next great big thing uh they also said oh it's over they're screwed that's it you know it. It,
0: kind of kind of in parallel to my earlier question uh was there could you feel when all of a sudden you know the 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 water's rushing out of the room could you feel when i cuz i i started around those times and i can remember almost to to the week when you know i would hear friends saying uh oh we all of a sudden we need revenue it, we we <laughs> it's no longer enough to just keep going with uh we'll make money someday did did you guys have a sense because you have these are your clients, you you a lot of your clients are dot com people. Did you feel when when that shift happened?
1: Yeah, I mean we didn't we didn't actually have that many dot com clients. There were only a couple. Most of them were real world companies like mm-hmm. Ford and Schwab, and you know I I think that what happened was you know there was a, there were a mixture of factors. Uh, you know we were profitable for five years every quarter, uh, and then. Toward at the end of that period, you know, we got a lot of pressure from our bankers to say, look, you guys are, are profitable, your competitors are not, and, and the companies are equally valued. You're not being rewarded for holding on to this cash. You should grow. You should spend it. You should grow. You should spend it. And that was the message that was hammered into us by our supposedly smart financial planners. And, you know, it's interesting, you spent a lot of time and money, you know. With these people and all these people, and making them your advisors. And after a while, you've got to feel like, well, you know they're my advisors. I should listen to them. And so you know we we started spending money and uh, you know investing in the future, as it were. And I think you know that's part of it. but look, like there were a lot of factors. we We and everybody else overexpanded when we saw problems, we didn't you know, we weren't strong enough to shut them down immediately. And the clients, I think, retreated much more quickly than anybody expected them to. But at the same time, what was interesting is, like I said, you know, it was not like, oh, this is a temporary change. Let's let's figure out how we get through this rough patch. It was, you're fucked. This is over. You know that that was that was it. And there were definitely there was definitely that shift. Look, it, everyone was afraid that that Y2K was going to shut down every computer. And all of a sudden, when they didn't in in two thousand, people started looking at their at their bottom line and started looking at their websites and saying, "Oh my God, we, we've been spending all this money. It, it, it has to make money, and it has to make money now." And you know, or we're spending all this money on these outside firms. Why? Why can't we just hire a bunch of these people and do it in house too? And that was, you know, that's a natural. In retrospect, it's easy to look at it, but it's it's a natural business cycle. But it just happened so rapidly and so dramatically that I think, you know, a lot of people panicked. And and I remember it well. I, you know, part of the reason we left the company was not because we didn't think there was a future in it. Clearly there is. It's still around. But um, it just wasn't pleasant to you know lay off people and and spend our time defending what we were trying to do and we felt like in order to to make it through this down period you know it was going to be a year or two of extreme agony and it didn't seem like the shareholders or the company wanted us to be the people to get them through to the next round uh, you know and it was and and it was it was a visceral pain you know and a, and a, a, the, the exodus of employees the people selling their stock the negative articles in the press—it all came hammering down at the same time, and, and it was definitely, uh, you know, a rough period.
0: But as you say, um, Razor, razorfish still exists. It's been—it's been passed around all over the place. It was at Microsoft at one point because it was bought by a Quantive, and Microsoft bought a Quantive. Is it who is it under now at this point?
1: It's actually um, owned by Publicis Group, a uh, you know Paris-based. Ad agency holding company <clears throat> which you know in uh in, in the world of things coming full circle is actually about to acquire Omnicom mm. and uh, and merge them in so uh Razorfish and Omnicom will be reunited once again mm-hmm. sometime in 2014
0: 2015 mm, stick around long enough you never know <laughs> exactly so i it's it's this sort of stuff, uh, just like when I was talking with the Netscape guys this is this is exactly twenty years on now does it uh does it feel like it's twenty years or does it still just feel like it was yesterday?
1: Oh, sometimes it feels like it was yesterday and sometimes it feels like it was fifty years ago. Uh, you know it's 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 funny. I read about razorfish. I, I don't spend any time there I, I I only know a few people who still work there. It's great to still see it around. I'm very proud of what we created. And, uh, and and proud that the brand and that the vision of the company lives on as 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 what Jeff and I started it out to be. Uh, but it, it's it's different. You know, it's definitely feels like it's been a long time since the beginning and even since, you know, what was the end for us? Uh, you know, since 2001, it's just the, the world has changed so dramatically. Uh, I, I still sometimes chuckle when I see a URL at the end of television commercials. Um, cause I still remember trying to explain to people what a URL was. And, uh, you know, the thought that companies would, would put that right up there next to their one 800 phone number seems so radical when it started. And so, you know, there are times when, when I look at it and think, Oh my God, that was, that really was a lifetime ago. But, uh, it was so intense and so amazing of an experience that it's also very fresh.
0: Uh, I actually, I, I hadn't known of this before um, talking to you today, but uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Is it Mouth.com or New York Mouth?
1: It's Mouth.com. We, we launched as New York Mouth, but it is currently Mouth. We are an online indie food store.
0: For only Brooklyn-based food companies, or all over the country?
1: No, we we so we started as New York mouth, and the idea was that you know really, really the idea behind the company was that there was a, a revolution and a movement going on in the food world, and and sort of this, you know, the last big shift in the way people ate, I think, or or the way people eat was sort of the rise of organics and organic food, and the last 20 years almost, maybe the last 10 years, have really seen this, this huge increase in people paying more attention to where their food comes from and, and, and who makes it and whether it was sprayed with pesticides or not. We feel like the next big <clears throat> revolution in food is the indie movement. So in the same way that there's indie music and that there's indie film, there's now an entire movement around indie food. People making pickles and jerky and cookies and ketchup and, you know, all sorts of food products, but not as part of a giant food company, but part of a, you know, part of small startups. And, you know, my experience with with technology and and, and a deep love for food and a lot of work with startup companies, I, I thought I would bring them all together under this umbrella, under mouth, and uh, built a store where we sell indie food, food that's made by by people, not companies, foods that are made by small startup companies. And we started out, as I said, as New York mouth. We started out just sourcing things in and around the New York area, but we realized very quickly that this movement, you know, much like the uh, the beginning of the internet, it, it was really happening everywhere across the country. And so now we have about a thousand products, and we and we source them from all around the country. I think we have products from about. 40 states and we're we're continuing to add new products all the time
0: I, I think it's a great idea well uh craig i appreciate you taking the time to talk with us
1: it was my pleasure brian i really love the project that you're doing and i'm and i'm glad that you know some of the people involved are able to you know help rewrite or or document the story